Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone. Welcome to another episode of Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me as always is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello, Saint Patch. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> Did you intentionally not use the word Patrick today? Because I was really looking forward to talking about how it's your day. Well, I would probably agree with you that it's my day, but if you ask my wife, she would say, not so much, my friend. In fact, this morning, she had my son pinch me because I wasn't wearing green, and I was like, but my name is Patrick. And she's like, no, it doesn't matter. I'm like, but scripture says that I am a saint, according to Romans. And she goes, you can't do that. This has been an ongoing battle in my family, and one that I'm trying not to lose, but it's becoming more futile with the years. Well, I side with your wife that that does definitely <laughs> does not count as wearing green. You don't get to call your name counting as green. Oh my gosh, you people. I'm going to talk to Patrick Willems and see if he can get on my side on this. Oh, it's you just... can't just go collect all the Patricks. That's not fair. That. I'm going to... <laughs> <laughs> well, if you came here expecting coverage of the latest young adult romance dealing with two people in their terminal disease, we're sorry to disappoint. We're not covering that one. Uh, instead, we decided to go back to what we consider probably the young adult novel turned film that sets the bar pretty high, John Green's The Fault in Our Stars. You know, I will say that by changing from Five Feet Apart to The Fault in Our Stars, we lose the cool synergy that this was episode 155 and we were doing Five Feet Apart. Yeah, but I don't know if many people would get that. I mean, I almost didn't get it. I was like, what are you to? Oh, I see there. You I know see. what else I didn't get about five feet apart? I didn't get that the rule is actually six feet apart. And I can kind of see some of the uproar now and why apparently the community, the CF community, is a little upset because the title of the film is misleading in and of itself. It refers to something that is more of a romantic nature, the five feet apart, when the, the right. actual rule is you can't be more than six feet. Uh, you can't be under six feet apart. So, mm, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that until after the film, so I was a little bit surprised. Yeah. Well, before we jump in, Patrick, I just want to do a couple quick announcements here. I want to welcome our newest contributor. That's Kales Davis. We are super excited to be bringing him on board. We've been watching his growth as a budding film critic over the last year or so. He's a local here in Seattle, a friend of mine who's attended some press screenings with me and um, has a very active letterbox account so you can seek that out and he contributed some review words to our black Klansman episode a couple of weeks ago that were really great and we're just pumped to bring his voice onto the show i think he's going to add a lot he's not going to be here every week if it sounds like i'm saying that that's not what i mean uh, he is going to be joining us next week for our episode on us with along with Emmanuel Noisette from E-Man's Movie Reviews. It's going to be a big one. And he's going to jump in occasionally during FF Plus, probably in the beginning. And we'll see where it goes from there. But please tune in, give Kales a listen, and uh, enjoy a new kind of take on feeling film. He's got the same mentality as we do, so we wouldn't be adding someone that didn't. Um, also, we want to thank our newest patron. That's Carla Mariel Jimenez. She's been an active member of the Facebook group. It's been awesome interacting with her there. And yeah, just thank you so much, Carla. We appreciate your support. It means the world to us, helps the world spin around for us and take the stress off. So thank you. 
Now, at this point, if you haven't been an active listener, we must warn you that we are a spoilery filled podcast. So this is the line that we draw saying from here on out, we'll be spoiling this movie and all of its tears and laughs and everything in between. And so, tears and more tears, more, probably more tears, <laughs> and maybe yeah. some more tears and some tears if we can, if we can help it. But um, you've been warned. So if you haven't seen the movie, please go see it for your own benefit, but also to be a part of what I hope is going to be a good conversation with and tears. then come on back with Lots the tears. Of tears. Okay. <laughs> I just want to set the stage, man. I want it to okay. be very clear. Just set, just, yes, yeah, set right. it right there. It's good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to kick us off with our one word takeaways, if you do not mind. And I think if I could pick out one thing that embodies really every character in this story, not just Hazel and Gus, it would be significance. Each character that we meet is in some way trying to find their own significance. You could maybe call it identity. The reason for existing in this this world that John Green has created, uh, for better or for worse, and it's these individual journeys and and how they are intertwined and influenced by each other that make this narrative more than just another young adult romance, which was very very refreshing for me, if I could say that, because I'd been on the young adult novel train for a long time, and The Fault in Our Stars was yet just another one. Gratefully, it didn't happen during a post-apocalyptic world that we know, and people weren't eating each other or things like that. It was really, but it involved young adults, which is why it's a young adult novel. And the film that came alongside it has those same kinds of, of character traits. But this one in particular is one that I think we can all relate to in some way because of these characters and the significance that they're all trying to find through each other and through themselves and through the circumstances that they're dealing with. And so regardless, I think as readers or in our case, as an audience, we can find connection with at least one of these characters in some way, which I'm very grateful for. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm, I think that identity is a good conversation to have. I mean, you're right. The significance is tied to identity in such a big way. It's something that we love to talk about. It is not surprising to me that you are honed in on something that has to do with identity in a big way. Before I launch into my own one-word takeaway, I wanted to read a little review from a friend of mine. I read this book back along with her. We actually went to see the movie together, and I thought that this review of the book really condensed my own opinion of it in such a great way. She said, I've read a lot, and I mean a lot of YA books, and that's much like what you were talking about. You, myself, her, we used to read these things like they were going out of style, two or three a month. We would just go through them more and more and more. And she says, the reason I read so many is because I knew that every so often I would stumble upon one that would turn me inside out. This is one of those books. It's the kind of book that leaves you physically aching after you shut it, the kind that makes you feel like you'll never look at the world the same. This book rips your heart out and makes you feel like there's a bowling ball sitting on your chest. It makes you crack up laughing until the people sitting next to you look at you like you're crazy. And best of all, it sews you up back together again and makes you think, really think about what it means to live in this crazy, devastating, but joyful world. And I love that. And I think that is the exact same experience that I had with the book. And I went into this movie with a lot of anxiety in a way because I was afraid it wasn't going to live up to 
that book experience. This was back in a time when I was definitely reading everything before I saw the movie. And so I had higher expectations for my movie adaptations. And I can say without a doubt that The Fault in Our Stars is one of the better adaptations as it goes for Aaron, in my own opinion. It works for me in a big way. But my one word takeaway is okay. And I think that this word and what it means is one of the biggest reasons I resonate so strongly with this film. For one thing, I'm a word guy. I love big ones. I love unique ones. And I also love very powerful, simple ones. I care very deeply about grammar and spelling, anything to do with words. Words can hurt and words can heal. So they mean a lot to me. And I also love symbolism, especially when it comes to love. And the idea of this one phrase signifying that simple bond that Hazel and Gus share and kind of representing their ideal dream of always being together moves me in a big way. So anyway, I love the film for a million reasons, especially for the amazing characters, not just Hazel and Gus, but also Isaac and their parents. I think the dialogue is incredible. Its cast is perfect. The soundtrack is great, and I'm sure that we're going to talk about it all, and if I can manage to keep from crying, I will consider that a win, okay? Okay. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I landed the plane there. You did. <laughs> well, let me get the conversation started by referring to a conversation we had offline before the decision to actually switch from five feet apart to uh, to this one. And to give you guys a little bit of inside baseball, this is our podcast. We can cover what we want, and we don't do this a lot. We don't think about a movie, see a movie, and then say, no, let's not cover it because we didn't like it. But having the benefit of you going to screenings and getting a little bit of a peek at your review, this was one that I I wanted to make sure, and I think we both agree, we want our conversation to be meaningful. Even if it's a movie that we don't really care for, at the very least, I didn't want to not enjoy my movie experience, especially since if it's coming out of pocket for me and I have to kind of fit it into other parts of my life, I broached the subject with you and I said, would you be okay with covering The Fault in Our Stars instead since you actually already watched it and you were cool with it? But then you said, are you going to see this anyway or have you read the book because if you have I can leave the spoilerness out and I said no go ahead and spoil it and then folks I got a close to five minute <laughs> box about really what probably would have come out on the podcast anyway so I figured why not let it come out on this episode not necessarily related to this movie so if you can keep what you told me spoiler free I would love to lead off the conversation by asking a question that, that you brought up. And it is this. <laughs> what does it mean for a movie to be, quote, emotionally manipulative? All right. Well, I'm kind of excited to dig into this question. And this is one that surrounds this genre in general when we're talking about young adult fiction or any kind of movie or book fiction that is centered on romance and disease and the idea of two people falling in love but one of them is tragically doomed now i think it goes back to shakespeare what i just said tragedy 
This is epic Greek tra- like the, you're you have characters that are doomed by fate. Now maybe they're not doomed by fate because they have cancer or cystic fibrosis, but they're doomed in some way. They're you're never going to end with this perfect happy ending. And it was interesting because originally I was not that interested in 5 feet apart. I got interested in it because of you and you wanting to cover it. Um and I love Haley Lee Richardson. So I was like, okay, I'll give that a shot. I saw a friend post a review of it and he before the day before I saw it and he had called it emotionally manipulative. And my immediate feeling was one of, I need to push back on that. I don't like those words. It kind of upset me. I was like, don't call something emotionally manipulative. Isn't everything emotionally manipulative? Isn't every movie trying to elicit an emotional response both with its music and its dialogue and its situational plot storytelling. So I feel like, in a sense, everything is trying to be emotionally manipulative. And I still believe that. But then I saw Five Feet Apart, and the experience that I had without, like you said, spoiling it and giving the specifics of how we got to my feeling, things occurred in the movie. So the movie was going along at a decent pace. I was becoming engaged and invested in the film and the characters. I felt myself developing empathy. And then a plot event occurred that was so outrageous to me that it took me out of that place of empathy and I began to become annoyed I was actively feeling angry about the direction the movie was going and the choices that they were trying to make me think were believable. And then the plot event started to wrap up and some really great music started playing. And I found myself and my body, Patrick, was beginning to get teary. My eyes started watering. I could feel that emotion welling up inside me, but my brain was still angry. And I was like, this is emotional manipulation. What I'm feeling right now, I am not actually feeling these emotions. But my body is reacting to what is on screen because it is conditioned to react in this situation. But logically speaking, I'm still very upset and not buying into this plot. So I felt like that is what maybe my friend was referring to in a movie being emotionally manipulative. So... I had wondered, you know, what you thought about it. And if you think I'm crazy, am I maybe along the the right lines here? Do you think that all movies are emotionally manipulative in some sense like I do? But that was my experience. And that's kind of the big aha moment that I took away from Five Feet Apart. Well, I I would say yes. I think all movies are and should be emotionally manipulative because that's part of why we go to movies. Not to turn our brains off and forget about life for a couple of hours, although that can be a byproduct. I don't know if that's necessarily effective or really great reasons to go to a movie. I think more than anything else, we're engaging in a narrative that should not only make us feel something, but make us feel something legitimately. And I think that's the word that I'm kind of tying to is the fact that what you're talking about is... If I'm going to be emotionally manipulated, make sure it's consistent. Don't throw something off the rails and take a plot and go completely out into left field and then add a little bit of spice to it with some really great emotive music and things that will cause me to emotionally react when you haven't necessarily earned that moment. And there are movies that 
do that egregiously. Um, I can't name any specifically right now, but I've felt that way before, not just in young adult, although I think young adult fiction tends to be the scapegoat because of the audience that it's trying to cater to, as well as the characters that live inside that genre. I mean, we're talking about an area of our age where we're coming of age, where we're learning more about ourselves. And when you're in the tween to teen age, your emotions are really what drives your life. We're being driven by how does this make me feel today? Or I don't feel this way today as I did yesterday and I feel differently tomorrow. That's not to say that as adults we don't feel that, but there's a lot more seasonedness and a lot more kind of maturity that comes with that. And I think that it's a bad thing not to be emotionally manipulated because I think that's part of the storytelling experience, but to do so in a way where something isn't earned, where you go from point A to point D without showing us B and C. Sometimes that's okay because it ne it's necessitated by something that happens in the narrative, but what you're describing sounds like you weren't able to get to that point logically or even emotionally, and therefore you're heart, your emotions are being tricked into thinking that you're supposed to care about something that you really don't care about. Are we supposed to care about characters? Absolutely. In fact, there's this great line in The Fault in Our Stars where Hazel's getting completely worked up about this book and she's being told these are just characters. They don't exist. It's fiction. But that's how we feel. Like how many times do we see in Facebook groups and in communities where people are getting worked up about how Batman is not being portrayed the right way. Yeah. This is not how he's supposed to be acting. And oh my gosh, Superman doesn't kill. I mean, this is on the superhero side. Just think about like regular people. And then when you get into biopics, then you're getting into a whole new set of things. And Bohemian Rhapsody probably comes to mind if people are hearing this or probably thinking that's an emotionally manipulative story because now you're changing events to tell your own story in order to create some kind of emotional response, mm -hmm. at the very least, some kind of like reimagined history. But I think with young adult, particularly, it would probably have the most liberty. It could be the most forgiving. But the fact is, anytime you're experiencing a story or a narrative, if you're not being given the steps to get from one place to another in your story, that pay off that kind of emotion to me that's just egregious you got to yeah. earn it you have to be able to earn that kind of emotion and as a counterpoint i think the fault in our stars is incredibly emotionally manipulative but it's completely earned and in some ways it feels a lot more authentic because of the real life circumstances that these people are going through right i could not agree more i watched it once before seeing five feet apart and and this was not my first viewing of the Fault in Our Stars, I'd seen it back when it came out, but this is my first viewing since then. I watched it before Five Feet Apart, and then I went and I watched it again just today before we recorded, and it really stuck out like a sore thumb how much better it was done, and I agree. In fact, I even noted that it is the reality of the situation that we we see these two characters in, and the fact that, you know, some of the things that happen, the fact they can't just pack up and go to Amsterdam, that... A doctor is trying to keep them from that and telling them, no, travel is not 
advised with your disease and the fact that they don't have the finances. The mom saying, oh, sorry, we can't afford that. You know, like most movies would be, you know, oh, we'll figure that out. Right. You know, we, we need you to get you. We need to get you to Amsterdam. That's the plot. So we're just going to have it happen magically. But in this one, it does feel a lot more realistic. And I think that does help with the buy-in for me emotionally but it is it was a drastically different experience and it made me even more upset about what what i felt in five feet apart in hindsight after seeing it done well in this one (laughs) well you bring to light a question from one of our uh, facebook folks he's been on the show before mj smith asked a really interesting question and i wanted to broach it with you for the discussion and he I'm going to quote him, and he's given us permission to do so. But he says, what do you think draws people to this type of film? And this is him. I'm quoting him. I don't understand movies about dying kids or dogs because, you know, they're going to die. It might be reductive, but I can only see those movies as here. Watch this kid die. And that doesn't seem entertaining to me. I'm very open about it, but my best friend died of cancer when I was 21. And at no point was I like, this should be a movie. People would get something out of watching this play out for two hours. Very well-spoken, and it makes a lot of sense. And yet, you and I are two people that would champion A Fault in Our Stars. So, what kind of of answer do you have for that? Here is what I will say. First, I want to preface this by saying I have never lost a friend or someone my own age that was close to me to a disease like cancer. So I am approaching this from a very different place of experiences than MJ is. And I just want to make sure I'm clear on that. Now, I have lost a parent to a disease, to diabetes and its complications over the course of many years. So I've, I've seen and lived with someone who's gone through their life being told they were only going to make it three more years, five more years, ten more years. And I've seen someone have to deal with that. Not necessarily really knowing, but it was on a lower scale, a lesser scale, I would say. Why do I think that people enjoy seeing movies about people going through things like that? Well, I think that in this case, and part of what makes The Fault in Our Stars special and what sets it apart is that it's not your expected story. Your expected story in this movie the whole way through is that Hazel Grace is going to die eventually, and that Gus is hopefully letting her experience some things before she dies. And the twist in the end that it's not even her that ends up passing away first in that she has to learn to deal with losing someone else is pretty impactful, I think. And it helps to set the mind right that no matter how bad your circumstances are, Someone else is going through bad things too. And there's this thing called fate. There's this thing called, you know, life that we don't all get dealt the same hand. Some of us are going to, to be forced to go through and endure awful diseases like cancer. Now, what I think I can gain and people can gain from watching a film like this or what draws me to a film like this is the hope that I'm going to see a fault in our stars, which can make me feel empathy and make me have insight into what someone else might be feeling that I would never experience for myself. That's part of what I love about The Fault in Our Stars is that 
I think it does a good job of capturing the feeling that kids with cancer could go through. Both the Gus version that wants to go through life just absolutely loving every single minute and the Hazel Grace character who's much more resigned in her uh, impending death, right? And there are probably other types of responses to that as well. So I like seeing that. It helps me understand where people might be coming from if I was ever to interact with and meet them. But this kind of movie also just makes me feel, Patrick. And I don't know if that makes me a bad person for liking seeing people go through this in order to do that for myself or what, but it generates emotion in me. It makes me cry. It makes me feel love. And it, it makes me think about things in my life that are not tied to experiences that are directly related to having a fatal disease, but I think can correspond. There are things that I take away from the Hazel and Gus relationship that connect me to my past relationships very, very strongly. And that's what I get out of a film like this. So it doesn't have to be reminding us of our own experience with the disease for it to have a positive impact on us in some way. Yeah, there's something beneficial about being omniscient when you experience story as an audience because you're not directly tied to these people yet with effective dialogue and effective music and effective acting, you can connect and have that empathy for them and not just for their situation, but how they connect with you. Because we, if done effectively, we find something that we have in common with these characters. Why do I like Gus? Well, because he has the same kind of sense of humor that I do. Why do I like Hazel Grace? It's because she is this way. Why do I like Isaac? Well, it's because he does this. And I think that's the case that we have with a lot of characters that we fall in love with, either through literature or through movies. And that's kind of a wonderful thing, but it also gives us a safety net because when the film's over, when the book closes, we go back to our life. And yes, we might be changed for better or for worse, but we can still close that book. We can end that. And I think that The Fault in Our Stars gives us that kind of insight, that empathetic insight into the world of teenagers and how they handle a debilitating disease, one that they may or may not be able to defeat in the same way that a movie like Schindler's List gives us understanding into the world of World War II and concentration camps and the things that are just that devastating. In that same token, I don't know, and I can't speak for anybody that's gone through this or family members that have experienced this. I don't know that someone who has been a part of that world of concentration camps or is a descendant of that would be able to watch a movie like this because of those types of personal connections. Does it make the movie bad? No, I don't think it does. I think that movies allow us a hint of moments of situations that we may or may not be able to ever experience. I told you offline earlier today, I was, uh, I was, I found out that my dad had a like minor stroke and it kind of freaked me out. And that's after my, my mom said, all the tests are coming back great. I'm like, 
it's a minor stroke. I mean, a stroke is minor or not. It's a wow. And each time I hear something like that, each time I hear about my dad being in the emergency room or something happening to my mom, I start thinking about mortality. I start thinking about, oh, you know what? My parents, they're getting older. Duh. Because I never think of them as getting older. I never think of them as being any older than 40 years old because that's who they are to me. Just like when I think about college basketball players or college football players, they always seem like adults to me because that's how I started knowing about them and growing up with them. They were always older than me. And now, you know, these are all 18, 19 year old kids. And on the same end of that spectrum, the the opposite end of that spectrum, I've got parents who are in their seventies and I'm like, no, you're not. You're perfectly healthy. You're still 45 and 50 years old. But that's because I have a demented, you know, brain that thinks I'm still 18. And so the fact is I need to have these types of stories around me so that I can understand, at least in part, on an emotional level, what it's like to go through that. I may never understand what it's like for a friend to battle cancer. And I don't think a movie is meant to make us feel guilty about that. I think more than anything, it's a story worth telling because it's something that allows us to go in and with a safety net be able to experience emotionally what's happening and then leave that space knowing that it can affect us, but it doesn't have to make us any worse for that. Yeah, I think the argument against it would simply be that this is not how life really is. This is romanticizing it and it really sucks and it's dumb to tell a story that makes it feel like there's some kind of hope. And I think that's just the point of this movie is that it's trying to generate hope and trying to say, no, it's worth having hope no matter how dire the significance is. And I love that you brought up Schindler's List because there are plenty of dramas that deal with disease and awful fated death and tragedy that handle it in a much more you know less hopeful manner in a way or just telling the story as it went down but i think generating that hopefulness is what this story is all about it's about saying that's what this is it's carpe diem i mean it's it's dead poet society right it sees the day sees the moment whether and we can resonate with that whether we have cancer or not you and i could die in a car crash tomorrow like the, there could be an earthquake and the entire West Coast could fall off into the Pacific Ocean. Like I could go away. You know, like there's a million ways in which things could happen, in which our lives could be over in a flash. They are fleeting. And why not live them like Gus lives his? It's inspiring in a lot of ways to me. Absolutely it is. And he has an effect on Hazel Grace from the moment he lays eyes on her. And it's... He has an effect it's, on me too. <laughs> friggin', I'm a freaking Gus fan. <laughs> Not a baby driver, that kind of thing. <laughs> no, not, not so much. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk first up about this kind of meta book, this book within a book or story within a story, reminding me a lot of Watchmen and the um, Tales of Black Freighter. Yeah, that kind That's of not thing. nearly as good though. No, no, it's not, but. You can see where I where I fit this in. Uh, it's called An Imperial Affliction. And yes, I did look it up to see if it was an actual book, pretty much knowing it wasn't. But, you know, whatever. I entertained myself with that. And I wanted to ask first about it. So it's a book that we don't have much insight about. 
we get the description from Hazel to Gus, and then we get that great kind of text message conversation from Gus about, wait, where's the rest of the book? Did you just give me part one? It's one of the few books that I've ever known. It may be the only one that I've ever heard of, fiction or not, that ends in the middle of a sentence. Well, there's got to be some significance to that. And so my first question to you is, what kind of significance does a book like that have to Hazel and Gus as individuals? Okay, I love this part of the storytelling device of this story. And when we talked about the movie, some things we're talking about are movie specific, but many of them apply to the book as well. And I'm a huge fan of this book. And I think whether you've seen this movie or not, and if you haven't read the book, the book is still absolutely worth reading. So I got to say, first off, when I read the book, I was, goodness gracious, probably a decade younger at this point. That's so old. Gosh, I'm old, Patrick. Um, And I don't know that I fully picked up on the whole Imperial Affliction through line in that story in the way that it was intended when I was reading it. When I saw it in the movie, it started to make more sense for some reason, just understanding that it was more than just an important book to Hazel Grace. It's why the book is important. There's a great line she uses to set things up where she says, it's about cancer. She's talking about the book, but not in a way, not in that way. Trust me. The guy who wrote it, Peter Van Houten, he's, well, the only person I've ever come across who seems, A, to understand what it's like to be dying, and B, not have died. And what this story that ends in the middle of a sentence kind of is supposed to tell us, I think, is that just like that character in the book, Anna, in Imperial Affliction, it parallels what Hazel is experiencing and what Hazel is going through. Because she's dying to know what happened to this character. She's feeling like that same character. Like she wants to know what's going to happen when I'm gone. What's going to happen to those around me when I pass away? How are they going to cope? How are they going to handle this? What's the void going to be like when I disappear from this world? That's at least what I pull out of it. And I think she's motivated by that. Because she wants him to help her get to the point of reasoning through this illogical mess. Like you brought up the great moment when she's with Van Houten and she's saying, yes, I know it's fiction, but it, yes, it still matters. <laughs> like what happens? Like she, she logically knows that, but she needs a, an ending to that story because she is attaching herself to it. And ultimately I think when she learns about her mom taking classes to be a support group leader that is sort of what makes her feel like it's okay like here's what the ending of her life is here's the ending of her imperial affliction it's going to be all right there's a a beautiful awful line that makes me cry really really hard (laughs) along with a million things in this movie where her mom tells her at the end you of all people know that it's possible to live with pain you just do it. Oh my gosh. This, this is going to be an incredibly difficult conversation the whole way through. And, uh, just remembering these things. And I think that that's what wraps up her imperial affliction storyline for her is understanding her mom knows it hurts. Her mom knows that it, it, it's going to end, but it, it's, it's going somewhere. And I love the fact that Gus is completely opposite of her, even in his book. Like the fact that his book, his book is called counterinsurgents and it's, 
quote, this haunting yet brilliant novelization of my favorite video game. But then he says, it's about honor and sacrifice and bravery and heroism. It's about embracing your destiny and leaving a mark on the world. And it's like, John Green is telling us the entire flippin' story in this opening montage or moments when they meet down in Gus's, what did he call it? The, the Gus, I forgot what the awesome name of his man cave is. The I Gus yeah. video game hangout or whatever. It has a really cool <laughs> it's an Augustus awesome, world or something. It's an awesome setup. I it's freaking cool. Setup. But anyway, my point is like the, the way that he uses both of these books dually to express the characters unique looks on life and then it follows us through the actual story. I don't know. It's brilliant. And I think it's really powerful. So here's what, here's what I think is really kind of cool about that is you're right. And I just now kind of had that aha moment where, yeah, you got these two books that inform us about these two characters. And it makes sense because they've read these books over and over and over again. And so their lives are informed by these books. What's interesting though, and I'm making a stretch here is that you have one character whose life has an ending, has a period in Gus. So he has that closure that she longs for. We don't know what happens to her. I'm going to assume that she starts to embody, at least in part, some of that honor and resilience because of that relationship with Gus. And so in some ways, they've physically traded these books so that they could allow one another to experience, this is who I am. Here's a way to get to know me. But by the end of the narrative, by the end of the story, we've almost gotten like opposite vantage points where yeah. Gus has taken on the role of the Imperial Affliction characters, where his life is over and he hasn't necessarily made that big mark on the world, but it doesn't matter because for her, her life is going on and it's not just a futile life, a life that's where she's just surviving, where she's actually living because of the significance that he placed on her life. 100% agree. And and it reminds me so much of the concept that we go through as teenagers. I mean, shoot, I'm 39 and I don't really date right now, but if I was still dating, I would still employ this strategy. And that is you give that person something that you love. You say, hey, watch this movie. Watch La La Land because I love La La Land. You will have a window into the idea of what Aaron likes and what Aaron finds romantic or watch this movie that's actiony and you'll you'll figure out what Aaron thinks about action or such and so forth and we do this we share music we share movies we share books and it's brilliant because it does it, it lets them get to know each other but it then also begins to inform who they then evolve and grow to become absolutely and I attribute a lot of the things that inform my life now to past relationships with people that I don't have any contact with. My love for Aaron Sorkin and the West Wing specifically come from a relationship with someone that I no longer have contact with, but I'm incredibly grateful for because it's helped inform me and it helped me appreciate things like the social network and talking about movies in general. And it's bled over into different pockets of my life and it's changed me in a lot of ways for the better. I'm more well-informed, at least on a social level, to be able to have better conversations about what a good screenplay is, is, is like and how Aaron Sorkin does this and that with his words and things. And I 
I think that's so important because it helps to make this, this relationship, at least in The Fault in Our Stars, a lot more rounded, a lot more meaningful. These aren't just two people who are getting together and romantically involved. Gus has to fight for that kind of relationship. In fact, through most of the movie, he's all in. I mean, he falls in love with her, I think, from the very beginning. I love the moment they first meet. He's, he doesn't stop looking at her. Like when they're in group. I know. In, in the literal heart of Jesus. I know. <laughs> he does it not likes stop. me, dude. <laughs> it's, I mean, and, and she's like, what are you doing? Yeah. And but that's he, how it happens. Yes. And he's so unapologetic about it, but that's who he is. And I love that he doesn't give up. In some ways, that could be a creep factor of about 9.5. But the way in which I think the I think the the turning point for her to start trusting him is when he pops that cigarette in his mouth and she just goes off on him by making this accusation that you're killing yourself. You think you're so cool, you know, but you're actually just just fulfilling the obligation that big business is tobacco. And she just goes on this big rampage and he's like, hold on. I don't light it. It's like a metaphor. When she's like, on, you're speaking my language now. Yeah. So he's hit one part of her, and then that one part starts to grow and grow and grow. And, and I love that because to me that feels natural. It, doesn't, it does feel a little bit romanticized, but it also feels natural at the same time. Yeah, I, I think that he's perfect in the role, too. I just think that Ansel Elgort is – I don't know that anybody else could have played it better than he does – because he feels 100% genuine to me and never out for himself. And I love like that you called out that moment of him looking at her because it draws my attention every time. I can't help but notice that. The same way that I notice he always calls her Hazel Grace. He uses her full name. He is constantly addressing her by her full name. Hazel Grace this. Hazel Grace that. Hazel Grace this. Way more than I think you and I would ever use each other's name in a regular conversational flow. And it's a manner of affirming her. It's a manner of giving her worth and showing her that she's important to him. I, and it is – the guy is pure, man. Um, He really, really is just romantically pure. And it's why this is so sweet to me because – they don't have this messed up relationship where somebody is bad to the other one and has to be forgiven. You know what I mean? It's real and sweet. And it's and it, the, the actions that they take with regards to each other's lives and their own in, in, at the same time, it is showing love and not just using the word of love. And the fact that they don't even get together until darn near the end of the movie, because she's so resistant. She is like, I'm not going to do this because it's just not worth it. And he constantly is just like patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. Right? There's that great moment on the airplane where he's freaking out. And which is also hilarious because we have, we see Gus utterly in control at almost all times in the story. But he gets on that airplane and he's like losing his crap because he's never flown before. And he's like, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful. And really casually, Hazel's mom is like, says something about them being boyfriend and girlfriend. 
And Hazel says, we're just friends. And Gus just nonchalantly and smoothly goes, well, she is. I'm not. And he just, <laughs> it's like he throws those things out there, but he never pushes it on her and never pressures her. I just think that it's such a sweet romance. I have no idea how we got off on this topic. And now I'm just lauding how much I love these two characters. But yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's not, great. it's not unwarranted. I mean, they are great characters. Um, let me take it back to the book, but more specifically to the encounter with Van Hooten. We've, we've hinted at this a couple of times. One of the things that she says in that conversation with Van Hooten, played by a great Willem Dafoe, by the way, I thought that was an incredible surprise. Short I, but sweet, man. He's, I, he's so good. He really is. He's really, he's just really great. Um, I love that when she confronts him and when she gets really angry with him, she says, tell me the ending. And he's like, I can't. And she's like, well, then make something up. There is a desperation in that moment where she wants that kind of closure. But that whole event, that whole trip to Amsterdam, you mentioned earlier that in other stories, that could have been the main plot. Let's get these kids to Amsterdam. Because that moment, they, in fact, that's what I thought was going to happen when I first saw this. I was like, oh, Van Houten's going to be, he's going to be the guy. He's going to be the savior. He's going to have the answers. He's going he's to be like the, the Wizard of Oz, who's going to have all the answers. And She's going to get those ruby slippers and just go right back to Kansas or whatever. And it was such an interesting and abrupt and wonderful turn when they get to go to Amsterdam. And I'm like, wait a minute. We're only like 45 minutes into this movie. This is the, this is a two-hour movie. What's happening here? And then that thing happens. And you're like, wow. I think, to me, this is what defines real life in terms of going after something and being disappointed in it and going after something else and being disappointed but growing from that there's a there's a great line we're gonna say there's a great line because there are a lot of great lines in this movie but there's a great line just after they leave the uh the complex right before they go to the uh Anne Frank house and she she tells Gus I'm sorry that I wasted your wish on this. And he immediately, this is kind of what I'm getting to. He immediately speaks back into her and he says, you didn't. This wish was for us, essentially. You didn't waste this wish. This wish was for me and you. And to me, that's what it was about. It was never about getting answers from Van Houten, maybe in part. But I think John Green and the screenwriters were basically saying, that's not what this journey is about. It's not about getting answers about a book that's a metaphor for your life. Your life isn't an imperial affliction. It's not that. You may want it to be, Hazel Grace, but it's not. It's something different. And I think as an audience, that's what I was receiving was this trip to Amsterdam is going to be a failure in one regard, but it's going to be a success in other ways. And you'll find out what that is. Just stick with me, says the director and the screenwriter and the book writer. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, and he didn't direct it, but <laughs> I think Josh Boone, or is it Josh Boone or Josh? Yeah, Trump? it was a completely just different. He, John Green was, you know, he was the the book author, but he didn't, he wasn't involved in the screenplay or the directing or anything. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree that that's what the trip was for Gus, and that it was intended to show Hazel Grace that the relationship she has in reality is more important than the questioning about what might happen to those people after she's gone. 
the relationship she has in the moment is what matters. And Gus just exemplifies that at every turn, constantly reaffirming it. There is a great line, though, Patrick, that I pulled out of Van Houten's meeting. He's talking about the crazy Swedish techno bass music that he's got playing or whatever. And he says, the important thing is not what the nonsense the voices are saying, but what the voices are feeling. And it it's almost like a throwaway line. It doesn't really go anywhere in the story, but I loved it because I was like, that's kind of what this book is about too for us as an audience because it's very wordy and I think it's wordy and it's well-written partially because Hazel is a character that due to her physical limitations and Gus's physical limitations, they, they have issues with being intimate and so they're expressive in their language in ways that other people may not have to be because they have other means of physical touch and comfort that they would give. But she relies on her words and thoughts and feelings. And so it's all about how that affects us and how it makes us feel. And I just thought like, man, if that isn't a piece of dialogue that's in line with the idea of feeling film, I don't know what is. And of course it's going to come from Will and Defoe's character because he's just wacko. And of course. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Gus's death and get your tissues out because it's pretty significant. And you mentioned earlier that this was kind of the twist or something. I don't know how you would describe it, but the thing that we didn't necessarily see coming. He announces to her that he got a PET scan and that his body lit up like a Christmas tree, indicating that the cancer's everywhere. Uh, it started out with a, a pain in his hip. And from there, there's a very quick kind of narrative shift. And because this is like the back half of the movie, uh, back half of the story. And not necessarily time wise, but at least for us as an audience, it goes pretty quickly. Like it doesn't linger very long before he eventually passes away. And in talking about Van Houten specifically, he shows up at this funeral, which is the weirdest thing because by the time that they get done just ripping him and we don't see him again, I almost wondered up until this moment, why was he even in this? <laughs> and so he shows up and he has that really great moment. It's like, now it's time for us to pretend to pray. This is the part where we pretend to pray. <laughs> like, wow, you just have no respect for anything at all. He's just completely like that. But I'm wondering why in the world did he feel the need to go to Gus's funeral at the end. I mean, we know what he delivered to Hazel, that letter that he, she eventually finds, but he could have sent that to her via email. He didn't have to give it to her in person. So why do you think he showed up at the funeral? I don't know. I would be speculating 100%. I think uh, probably because he is still looking for the same sort of closure that she is due to his daughter's death from a cancer i believe it was or leukemia of some sort i'm not remembering exactly what it was that is his daughter correct that yeah. died yeah yeah so he's I mean, we learn in that conversation he has with her we are able to then have a little bit of empathy for his character and understanding yeah. of to why he has become the awful old person that he is and i think i think he needed this in the same way that Hazel maybe needed to go to him for closure, 
it's almost like a reversal where he's coming to her because he knows he's hurt her and he's essentially closing the book on getting forgiveness to some extent or rectifying his wrong by coming and doing this in person as a man and, mm-hmm. and kind of taking responsibility for his prior mistakes because he does apologize to her. And I think he understands the importance of doing that in person. Yeah. And the fact is he delivers an email that he got from Gus and the email itself was Gus writing to him saying, Hey, this is basically a eulogy that I'm writing for her. And I need you to basically spice it up because I'm a terrible writer to which Van Houten basically agrees. He says, wow, your penmanship isn't as great as you make it out to be. Early on when he meets them in Amsterdam. And I found it pretty amazing that that's what he delivers to Hazel, that he doesn't put his own spin on it. And I think part of that has some good significance because he understands that someone's words to someone else don't need to be Cyrano de Bergerac. You know, they don't need to be filtered through a really sophisticated lens his words need to be his words to her not his words via van houten i think some of that comes from their experience with with van houten in amsterdam but i think it's also why when when they leave the house when they leave van houten's house gus makes the comment that he says don't worry about that i'll write you an ending i'll write you a whole book that finishes this out But in the end, he doesn't do that. He actually writes her a eulogy. And I found that really interesting because of the fact that a eulogy is about a person. It's essentially a love letter. It's essentially a, this is what I feel about you. And I think that's a lot better than fulfilling her desire to have closure with the book that she connects with. Because I think he understood her intimately enough to say, that's not what you need. You don't need closure you need significance. You need value. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think you're absolutely right. He's doing what he's done the whole story, which is continually show her that you are enough and what you are right now is more than your cancer. And it's kind of like what she tells him when he's dying. I don't think you're dying, Augustus. You've just got a touch of cancer. And that's what he's telling her over and over and over. And the eulogy is a piece of that, like you said, giving her that significance, affirming her. I also think, or maybe I'm just hopeful here, but I like to believe that this is who Gus is. I mean, we've seen him be like this with her. We've seen him be like this with Isaac. I've got to talk about Isaac before we're done. Um, But he does this for everybody in his life, according to what we have been shown. I got to believe that Gus saw Van Houten as another hurting person and thought, Here's a way I can impact this guy. So I think part of it might have been because he knew Van. this could be a benefit for Van Houten. This could be a healing thing for Van Houten as much as it could helping him to do something for Hazel. Like he's, he's a very smart guy. We see that over and over again. So, I mean, I think he had the best of intentions of just, I see him as this character that just goes around trying to bring joy and increase joy in everybody that he meets. And yeah. Even no matter how they treat him. Yeah. I think a great scene that really articulates this is the, the egg, the egging scene where he gives Isaac power over 
his grief. And uh, I know you want to talk to that. So I'll go ahead and release that to you to talk about. <laughs> Thank you. No, <laughs> this is like, this was so close to being my connecting point. Okay. And I mean, there's so many points in this movie that can be a connecting point. It's unreal. Like the entire movie is a connecting point. It's like one big, <laughs> just connected connecting point. But I just really love this relationship. First of all, Isaac in the book is even more amazing than Isaac is in the movie. There's a lot more of Isaac. So when I recommended reading the book, that's part of the reason he is a really great character. And we, I think he's played wonderfully in the movie in the smaller parts he has. But the egg scene in particular is so special to me because it goes back all the way to that same, well, not the same, but like one of the prior times that they're in Augustus World's basement and they're hanging out and they're talking about the book and Isaac announces that Monica has broken up with him. And part of the reason Isaac is such a cool character is this is a guy who has cancer in his eye, so he's lost an eye already. And his big thing, his big affirmation and significance of his own self is that he has a girlfriend with big boobs who's gorgeous. And that makes sense as a teenager. Like his value, he places value in something that other people value via sight. That's what matters because he is losing that ability. Gus recognizes all of, he, he's so smart. I'm in love with Augustus Waters. He's amazing. And Isaac is having trouble because of this breakup. He's, he's upset. And it, it happens so great because Gus is almost like on the corner of the room, like not really paying that much attention. He's talking to Hazel, but he's still, he knows what's going on with Isaac pacing back and forth. And Isaac's like screaming into a pillow and Gus is like, that's not going to work, dude. And he's like, here, take my trophy. Patrick, I felt like that is such a best friend moment. Like the yeah. few, few best friends probably even get to that level to where you so intimately care about that other person's hurt right now that you don't give a crap about your trophies. And of course, Gus makes some reason up so that he, it, it makes Isaac feel like it's okay. Like, oh, I don't need those anyway. But he just lets him bash the trophies. And what I found significant about that moment is that it's because Isaac copes differently. All the characters in this cope differently. And that's part of what John Green is showing us. There's not one way to cope. Isaac copes with hurt and pain through aggression, physical. He needs to get it out physically. Gus knows this. Gus recognizes this and gives him an outlet. So fast forward to the egging scene. And now Isaac has lost his second eye, right? And they're trying to cheer him up. And what does Gus figure? You need to do something that's going to get that aggression out. And so they go to, to egg this car and it's, beautiful it is absolutely an amazing scene of friendship i think it's hilarious i, I laugh my butt off and then start to cry it's so, like it's at the same time i like laugh and cry i have that moment of emotional just my heart is exploding when his when her mom comes out and has that look on her face like what is happening right now these kids are throwing eggs and gus gives this speech he says hello ma'am your daughter, she's done a great injustice. <laughs> I love that line, by the way. She's created, done a great injustice. So we've come here seeking revenge. You see, we may not look like much, but between the three of us, we have five legs, four eyes, and two and a half working pair of lungs. But we also have two dozen eggs. So if I were you, I would go back inside. 
and you hear Isaac. He's like, did that work? Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't believe that worked, dude. That's awesome. And then he just chucking them, right? And you can feel the relief and the, the pain going out of Isaac in that moment. And it's like, it's because of Gus, man. Like he's the harbinger. He's the bringer of all of this to these characters. And it's just so beautiful. There is, if, if significance was the one word takeaway, a close second was closure for me. And I think that the main characters in here, Isaac, Hazel, Gus, uh, Hazel's mom, even in Van Houten, they all are seeking some kind of significance, but they're also all seeking some kind of closure. And what I really like more than anything else is that this narrative gives all of them that in some way. And sometimes, for some of them, it's not what you would expect, which I think speaks to the character arcs of some of these guys. So for Isaac, I think that was his closure. The egging. It reminded me a lot of <laughs> the scene in Forrest Gump where, I know this is a weird place to go, where Lieutenant Dan jumps in the water and you know what I'm talking about. And he's, he's doing kind of like do. a, a backstroke. Yeah. And you've got, you've got Tom Hanks' Forrest Gump sign. I think Lieutenant Dan finally made his peace with God. Like, I think that was his closure. And those moments in movies really leave me feeling satisfied because yes, it's nice to have questions at the end of movies, of, of stories and things to ask and go, I wonder. But there is some kind of satisfaction that comes from saying, this person's story is coming to a close. There's a period at the end of this person's sentence. For Gus, his death, I think, was that closure. I think for for Hazel's mom, it was that realization, not realization, but that expression to Hazel that her life will go on. She will miss her daughter like crazy, and it will be one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing that she'll ever have to do is to let her daughter go. But she's finding closure in knowing that her life is going to go on through the world of social work. And all these different things just – it's not even that things are getting wrapped up in a nice little bow. It's just that they're finishing. And there's something really nice in knowing that something is finished. Not that it's finished with beauty or finished with perfection or finished with resolution even. But it's just finished. And I think that this story does that in so many different pockets with these characters that it's really beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. I, I agree. I, I think that word is it's still so, so simple, but it's so true. And I guess, you know, as we we were kind of talking about Gus's death here, that starts to happen for Hazel. And it's almost like that's where we see like the transition of her coming of age or her coming around to his way of thinking fully is yet another connecting point is Gus calling her and breaking down. I know, I know I'm going to try and I am, I'm the one talking right now. I got to like actually speak these words without crying and he's breaking down at the gas station and he's sick and he wants cigarettes and he's like, I mean, again, the acting is fantastic. He's really selling it. And he's like, I wanted to do something for myself. And what's so heartbreaking is because it's the first time in the entire movie, it's almost the end, when we've seen Gus broken and hurting and scared. Because up until this point, like, he has been the epitome of, like, a rock. 
He's been that guy for everybody else. And Hazel says, I wish I could say that Augustus Waters kept his sense of humor until the end, that not for a single moment did his courage waver, but that is not what happened. And I think that's important because I think it shows us he's not a fantasy character. He's not native stone. He is a real live human being. And no matter how hard you try, there's going to be moments when you feel that too. And it gives her an opportunity to then have that final scene with him that we see of them when he's out of the hospital before he dies. And I love that he dies off screen and we don't have to go through it, by the way. And she's talking to him and she says, I'm mad because I think you're special. And is that not enough? You think that the only way to lead a meaningful life is for everyone to remember you, for everyone to love you. Guess what, Gus? This is your life, okay? This is all you get. You get me, and you get your family, and you get this world, and that's it. And if that's not enough for you, then I'm sorry, but it's not nothing. Because I love you, and I'm going to remember you. And while I think that she may still have a slightly wrong reading of Gus's needs and desires in this moment... This is her coming around to realizing, like, she's literally saying and exemplifying the feelings that Gus has been trying to kind of bring along in her. That it is all about this moment and this relationship. You don't need to worry about what happens afterwards. And I, I just think it's, ah, oh, it's so well put together. Very much like a a teenager who has to grow up pretty quickly. And to me, I think that's what exemplifies a good coming-of-age film is when you have a significant growth. Um, to kind of hint back to what you talked about earlier with the emotional manipulation, this is the A to B to C to D. And where D is the moment that you're feeling right here because A, B, and C have happened. For her to say that to him takes, I think it takes a lot of investment. It takes a lot for her to be able to admit to him that what he has wanted is exactly what she's telling him. That he may think, he may have thought that making his mark on the world was going to give him value and significance, but that moment reminded him that he just needed to be cared for. He just needed to be valued by one person. Nobody else. Not even her if it had to be, but just one person. And I think in that moment, that's when, if I'm thinking romantically, I think that's the moment when he felt like he could die in peace because of the fact that he knew he mattered, period. Not to the world, not to a certain number of people, but that he mattered. And I think that's the journey that he was on was, how do I prove to the world that I matter? Well, you just did yeah. by befriending this girl. And all that stuff that you talked about, Aaron, the way in which he reaches out and does these things that we just kind of think are insignificant. The way he hands Isaac the trophy and says, just go to town. And then with the, the egging later, and then with reaching out to Van Hooten, mm -hmm. he doesn't realize it, but he's making his mark. Maybe yeah. he does, but I don't think he does. I think he's just, I don't think he does either. I think this is just who he is. And that impact has this indirect effect on her. And she's able to articulate to him here this is what you did. <laughs> and I am the voice that tells you you matter. And it's wonderful and sad at the same time. It's just this duality of like, oh, and yes. So huh. it also gives us a really sweet 
dad-daughter moment. I know we mentioned Laura Dern. Laura Dern is phenomenal in this film. She um, she's in it briefly, you know, not a lot, but man, does she, is she perfect. And then Sam Trammell, he, I only knew him from True Blood before this movie, but I think he nails it as her father um, as well. There's a, a wonderful, just brief, brief moment at the end of this story where he walks into a room and he sits down with her on the floor by her bed. And, and I'm a dad of a teenage girl. My, you know, my daughter doesn't have cancer. But he says, I'm so, so sorry. It was a privilege, though, to love him. Gives you an idea how we feel about you. <laughs> oh, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Um, because, you know, yeah, that's what she's been worried about. And he's he's kind of backing up what her mom has said already. And what they, you know, it's like a the exclamation point on that conversation about her working with a support group and becoming a therapist and having purpose and value after Hazel's gone. He's saying, hey, look at this. You see what's happening right here? It's okay because we will feel the same way when you are gone. Um, and it was just, oh, you know, dad and daughter move moments in any movie are going to get to me, but... That one was um, pretty strong as well. Probably a close second, third, second point five, five of connecting points. Yeah, I don't know. I have so points. many. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's find out what our actual connecting points were. Not to dismantle or diminish the value of these other ones, because I think everything is given a lot of value. But for you, what was the one moment that kind of stood above and beyond the rest? Well, I, I don't even want to say that it stood above and beyond the rest. Uh, to be honest, I just picked one. Okay. That, because I got to the point where there were so many, and I knew that if I tried to go too deep into any of these others, I was definitely going to cry, and I thought maybe I might make it through this one without it. Fair um, enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so I've actually pulled the audio for both of our connecting points, and I thought it would be nice to to play them just for listeners who may not have seen the movie recently. So I picked the Anne Frank House, the audio that takes place prior to them having their first kiss and it goes like this all is as it should be god wishes to see people happy where there's hope Hazel. there's life This is it, look. Well. Uh, all right. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Thanks. The only member of the Frank family to survive was Otto. Anne's father. At such moments, I can't think about the misery, but about the beauty that still remains. Try to recapture the happiness within yourself. Think of all the beauty in everything around you. And be happy. I love this. Um, and obviously as a person of faith, 
the the part of God wishes to see people happy, I think is meaningful to me. When she says, where there is hope, there is life, I think that is really just reiterating the story that we've been walking through already up to this moment. Think of all the beauty and everything around you and be happy. This is what Gus has been preaching over and over and over for Hazel to see. And it's taken this awful, sad, I guess not failure, but you know, lack of getting what she wanted and meeting Van Houten to help realize that, that it's all about Gus now. And that's what he's there for. And she's trekked up to this house. So part of it is that it's taken her a physical toll to get there. And she's pushed through to this moment. And we just hear this going on the background, this voice of Anne Frank. It's supposed to be this voice of Anne Frank. And they kiss. And I think it is, so tender and so sweet and so spontaneous, unlike most romantic movies that build up to this kiss in a way that is all about the sexuality. There's zero here. It's all about what has led them to this moment in their character growth, in their coming of age, in their understanding of each other. And I find it interesting that people have complained about this kiss and this moment, Patrick, saying that it's disrespectful to the people around them who are experiencing this history being in the Anne Frank house. And I read it differently, man, because to me, it's like, aren't they just living exactly what this voice of Anne Frank's diary is suggesting they do? She's likely to die in her situation because of hate and oppression, Anne Frank, when she's saying these words, writing them. But they're likely to die from fate's cruel choice of them having cancer as well. So really, are they all that different? And isn't finding a way to enjoy the moments of life that you do have, whatever that means, whether it's being stuck in an attic, waiting for the Nazis to find you, or waiting for the cancer to finally take over your entire body, isn't it beautiful when a person can do that and enjoy those moments? And I think it's really telling that the people around Gus and Hazel in this moment when they kiss, I think they understand that. And I think that they feel that energy in the room with them and they stop and they say bravo and they clap. And it is, to use that word we've already said multiple times, it's beautiful and it is tender. And I just think it's great because like that voice says, at such moments, I can't think about the misery. I can think about the beauty that still remains. And they finally embrace that together and are able to share this perfect kiss. And it's just, it's amazing. It really is. And it was the start of my connecting point collection, like the Anne Frank house. And I was collection. like, oh, well, this is going to be it. This is it. And then the scene at the bench where he tells her that He's the, the his cancer's come back. Okay, well that's probably gonna be it. And then the breakdown in the truck at the gas station. I'm like, okay, well, okay, you can't get much. I guess it's gonna be the end credits because of the way it's going now, it's just gonna be that way. It's just you know, it's just escalating. Fortunately, it got to a point for me in one moment, and it finally subsided. And I was like, okay, I can breathe again. Okay. So late in the film, as Hazel is about to read her eulogy for Gus in at his funeral, she ends up 
making something up. Like she looks at his parents and she refers back to this atrocious kind of motivational poster print that's on their wall. And she says in a voiceover, funerals I decided are not for the dead. They're for the living, which I personally believe is a true statement. It's really about comforting those that are left behind after a person passes away. But the scene earlier with just her and Isaac and Gus, she discovers that Gus wants to get a chance to attend his own funeral. And just in case he doesn't get to as a ghost, as he says, he puts together this quote pre-funeral, which I think is a fantastic term. So brilliant. Yeah. So let's like, let's listen to the audio. Augustus Waters was a cocky son of a bitch, (laughs) but we forgave him. Not because of his superhuman good looks or because he only got 19 years when he should have gotten way more. 18 years, buddy. Dude, come on. Really? I'm assuming you have a little more time, you interrupting bastard. Interrupt me in the middle of my eulogy. You're supposed to be dead. (laughs) But um, when the scientists from the future come to my house with robot eyes and they tell me to try them on, I'm going to tell those scientists to piss off because Gus, I don't even want to see a world without you. I don't. I don't want to see a world without Augustus Waters. Then having made my point, I'll probably put the robot eyes on because, you know, come on, the robot eyes. Sounds awesome. Hello. My name is Hazel Grace Lancaster. And Augustus Waters was the star-crossed love of my life. Ours is an epic love story, and I probably won't be able to get more than a sentence out without disappearing into a puddle of tears. Like all real love stories, ours will die with us, as it should. You know, I'd kind of hoped that he'd be the one eulogizing me. There's really no one else. <sighs> yeah, no. Um, I'm not going to talk about our love story because I can't. So <laughs> instead, I'm going to talk about math. I am not a mathematician, but I do know this. There are infinite numbers between zero and one. There's point one. and 0.112 and an infinite collection of others. Of course, there is a bigger infinite set of numbers between 0 and 2, or between 0 and a million. Some infinities are simply bigger than other infinities. A writer that we used to like taught us that. You know, I want more numbers that I'm likely to get. And God, do I want more days for Augustus Waters than what he got. But Gus, my love, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for our little infinity.
you gave me it forever. Within the numbered days. And for that I am... I am eternally grateful. So two of my favorite lines in this movie come from this scene. Isaac says, when the scientists from the future come to my house with robot eyes and they tell me to try them on, I'll tell them to piss off because I don't want to see a world without you, without Augustus Waters. And first of all, I love the fact that he says you. It doesn't say him because this is a eulogy that they're trying to say knowing that he's not going to be there. But of course, you know, he's there. He's attending his own funeral. So I love that, that it's very much he's talking directly to him. And then the second line, set of lines, comes from Hazel. And she says, she's talking about math and how she's never been good at it. And she talks about how there's an infinite number of numbers between zero and one. And she finishes by saying, I want more numbers than I'm likely to get. And my God, do I want more days for Augustus Waters than what he got. But Gus, my love, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for our lentil infinity. That scene as a whole, even though it's about Gus, it's equally just as much about each of these three, about their intimate relationships with each other, and it expresses in such a tender way how much they mean to one another. There's no BS, no lip service, but this opportunity to genuinely express love and grief and joy all at the same time. It put me back in how I felt about the, the trio from the perks of being a wallflower and how intimately they cared for each other. And coincidentally, how they used the word infinite. <laughs> by the end of the movie hearing this we are infinite being together and to me this is genuine friendship and i think it expands beyond just a romance between gus and hazel but it amplifies the relationship that gus had with isaac and how deeply isaac cared for his friend gus equally as much as how hazel cared deeply for gus i love the fact that it's just the three of them in this holy place, not in the literal heart of Jesus that gets made so much fun of, but they're in this holy place, this beautiful church saying these things. And I love the fact that she doesn't say the same stuff at his actual funeral because it's not as intimate because she's not playing a part. She and Isaac are both being real in this moment. And they're saying, this is what you mean to us. Where Ironically, I don't feel like they could say that at the funeral because nobody else knows them like they know each other. And to me, I think that is the most authentic scene in the entire movie because I think it emits a big amount of sincerity and love and joy and all these emotions wrapped up into one. It is definitely beautiful um, and is super funny and sweet and just progresses into like that moment where you burst into tears. 
there's two things you just mentioned I want to real quickly just piggyback on and then piggyback off of, and then I'll be done. But that's the encouragements you mentioned, the little positive sayings on the wall in Gus's house. I think you're right. I think that in her funeral eulogy with his parents there, you're right. It's not a personal thing for Gus. He's already had that moment with her, but her bringing those up is because she knows that those are what brings his parents comfort. And it's like another one of the beautiful, brilliant pieces of this story where she is Gus in that moment. She's become Gus. She knows that that's what his parents need to hear. Like They need to feel like the thing that they have put value in to cope is meaningful. And that's why she brings them up because it, it is positive for them. It helps them. It's about them. Um, and then, yeah, I don't have anything to add deeply about the, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for our little infinity, but that is probably my most favorite line in the movie. And also the one that like on a personal relation goes to my own experiences level completely wrecks me in every single way. Every time I hear it, um, every time I think about it, cause I'm that guy like Gus who equates symbolism to everything in my life, past and present. So uh, it is, it is an incredible line. And I love that you mentioned how it makes you think of Perks of Being a Wallflower because it makes me think of the same thing. Um, and they're a great pair of films in, in a way to like go together. Uh, you know what I mean? I think they, they really do complement each other. So yes, beautiful, beautiful eulogy moment in the literal heart of Jesus. Well, it wasn't in the heart of Jesus. It was in the literal, little... literal heart of Jesus. <laughs> As Patrick said. Okay. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, Kleenexes are gone. Composure is back. And it's been good. <laughs> I guess you could say we enjoyed this movie. Slightly. In, in some in some degree. <laughs> <laughs> and that really does it for this episode of Feelin' Film. Uh, next week, we're bringing you a new FF Plus with reviews of The Hummingbird Project and Screwball, as well as a conversation about Disney Plus and a Netflix versus Steven Spielberg combo that came up a couple of weeks ago that we'll get into more detail about. Bring your verbal boxing Okay. Who will emerge victorious? Anyway, we'll find out. And following that will be our next main episode on Jordan Peele's Us with new contributor, Coles Davis and Emmanuel Noisette of E-Man's Movie Review, so be sure to check that out. Aaron, as always, thank you so much for a great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.